Hi there, welcome to Western Water 101, where we talk about the history, future, and issues of water in the Western US. I'm Sarah Porterfield, Water Policy Associate for Trout Unlimited. I've lived all over the West, from growing up in California to college in the Pacific Northwest, to working as a raft guide in Utah, and now living in Boulder, Colorado, where I work connecting federal policies and programs and on-the-ground projects with TU. And I'm Brennan Sang, born and raised in Michigan, but I spent almost a decade out in Montana. And like a lot of Easterners who headed out west, I was struck by how different our relationship to water was in Michigan compared to the high desert out there in Yellowstone country. And uh, as digital director here at TU, I've read a lot about water in the west and our efforts out there, but I, I, I'm starting to get more of a, a historical and political and scientific uh, perspective on this stuff due to this podcast. But that's really one of the things that I've been trying to get out of this is to really grok those issues about about water out in the West. And so I've really enjoyed it. I'm really excited to keep talking to you and also to talk to the great guests we have today. Yeah, and this is our fifth episode. In the past two episodes, we've looked at how TU works, how we work in the West, first through on the ground projects and the variety of projects that we do out here with our guest, Paul Burnett from Utah. And the last podcast, we looked at how TU works with federal agencies, um, specifically in that for that podcast, we talked about the Bureau of Reclamation and the WaterSmart grant program. And today to talk about our legislative work, we have as our guest, Laura Ziemer, Senior Counsel and Water Policy Advisor for TU's Western Water and Habitat program and she's going to be talking uh, about with us about TU's legislative work and the farm bill. Thanks for joining us, Laura. It's a pleasure to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what the work you do with TU is like? Uh, of course, it's been my pleasure to be with TU for over 20 years, starting as one of the first staffers in the Western United States and being the first staffer in the state of Montana with my then colleague, Melinda Casson, who started our Western Water Program in Colorado. The two of us were launching this then, 20 years ago, small effort to see if we could answer the question, is it possible to put water back into dewatered streams? Not only had not, there weren't very many people asking that question, but it was in the very early days of making any attempt to answer to the question and to create both the legal authorities and the on the ground projects to restore those dewatered streams. It is not that, that those dewatered streams or as we call them legally dry streams weren't important. In many cases, those legally dry streams were the key linchpin to fisheries health and watershed health in a watershed. It's just that it was the hardest issue to tackle. But I'm always up for challenge. So why not? Uh, yeah. And what that meant, as I'm sure you have been covering, Sarah, in Western Water 101, is that legally dry condition is a result of our settlement patterns and our agricultural and development patterns over the last century plus. And so a problem over a century in the making doesn't have a quick solution. And it was my experience before coming to Trout Unlimited that the most durable conservation had to come from the folks who are living in our rural watersheds and our communities and come from a place that honored their stewardship and included them as part of the solution. Because without that, there's just more fighting and division and we certainly have enough of that on our hands already. So that brings us over to the farm bill because the Farm Bill is the largest source of conservation funding in the United States, hands down. And over and above that, 
really the only source of conservation funding at scale for private lands. And those private lands are where a lot of the restoration benefit takes place. While of course our headwater streams and our national forest areas are critically important, if you don't connect those headwater areas and those public lands to the big fertile river valleys that are on private lands and this important tributary connections to main stem rivers that are almost entirely on private lands, you're really losing the benefit of our connected watersheds of the full scope of the potential of a healthy watershed and hydrologic function in fisheries populations. So that's why farm bill is important and both to me personally, but in the scheme of restoration. And to make a distinction from what we talked about in the last episode, when we talked about reclamation and water smart, I don't think we touched on this in the last episode, but that reclamation tends to work on those off farm, non private lands kinds of projects. They might work with irrigation districts, um, but that's the distinction between NRCS and reclamation is that NRCS mostly does those work on those private working lands on farm kinds of projects. Exactly. Well put, Sarah. And would say, especially out here in Montana and other parts of the, the Rocky Mountain West, the fact that the farm bill extends to our rangelands is also really important. So it's not only on farm, but it's these wide swaths of rangeland that are covered by the conservation title that really holds that trout restoration potential. Mm-hmm. So I think we have, I keep trying to put on my Easterner hat while we're talking. There's a mid- Midwesterner, I'd say, upper Midwesterner. But I think that the amount of public land that we have in the West compared to the East is something that is is easily overlooked. Until I got out there, it was very difficult for me to really get my head around how important that public land was and how much of it there was. I grew up going to national forests for recreation around here in Michigan, and I just assumed it was fairly similar out there. That it, But actually being out in the West and seeing those just enormous public land holdings uh, really changed a lot for me. But I can also really see how essential those little, those private holdings must be in keeping that connected system. So I think that's a, a kind of a light bulb moment for me there. Thanks. Right. Well, and Brenda, tribute to your home state of Michigan, some of Trout Unlimited's most important farm bill work is actually in the upper Midwest, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Driftless area. Yeah. And as you say, there's the private lands together with some of the state forest and national forest lands is an area of incredibly productive trout habitat. That's also a really important agricultural area. Yeah, it's the work that we've done in the Driftless is just fantastic. And so a lot of that was done with, with farm bill funds. Is that right? That, that's right. That's one of the key funding sources for a lot of that good work in the Driftless area. That's so growing up, I grew up in a rural community and when the farm bill came up, it was because it was an agricultural community. And when I heard people talk about the farm bill through the, I'm going to date myself, but through the eighties and, you know, into the early nineties, we were, they were talking about helping the farmers in, in our community, or they were talking about food stamps and later passed on with SNAP. And it wasn't really until I got here with TU that I realized how yeah, that how big the the conservation funding that comes out of the farm bill is. What what are the mechanisms for how that goes through? You mentioned the 
I heard the NRCS and also conservation title. And those, I don't know what those mean. It's a busy world of acronyms under the Farm Bill. <laughs> so, yeah. Brennan, you're, you're quite right that the Farm Bill encompasses much more than the conservation work that Trout Unlimited intersects with. And it's 12 sprawling titles, including, as you mentioned, everything from what we typically call food stamps or supplemental nutritional assistance program, SNAP, to uh, crop insurance, to emergency drought payments, to international trade subsidies and tariffs. So that this sprawling farm bill, the conservation title or one section is just a one twelfth of the farm bill pie in terms of its it's one of 12 titles, but it actually has a fairly significant amount of funding attached to it relative to other titles. The biggest ones still are, of course, SNAP or food stamps and crop insurance. But conservation over time has become a bigger part of the farm bill. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that as the Natural Resources Conservation Service or NRCS, the agency tasked with implementing the conservation title, as that agency gained both staff and expertise, the scope of getting these conservation practices out to individual ranchers and farmers expanded and they became oversubscribed, meaning there are many more producers, both out west, midwest, and on the east coast, mm -hmm. and including small private forestry owners mm -hmm. who wanted to engage with the farm bill programs, but there wasn't enough funding to go around. Okay. So there's a, it became more, it became broader in its scope. And we also over the years have learned more as a restoration community about how important fish and wildlife habitat on these private lands are. And Brennan, as you were talking about understanding that mosaic between private land stewardship and public land holdings, we're really as a restoration and conservation community, really understanding in a way that we didn't 20 years ago, how important those connections are. And the conservation title of the farm bill is a key part of both maintaining those connections from a restoration standpoint, as well as, especially out West where we have a lot of land turning over to development of finding ways to keep agricultural lands in agricultural production and right. supporting payments to producers for their stewardship of their lands is another way to make their operations as profitable as they can while supporting that stewardship. And Trout Unlimited long ago realized that ranchers and farmers were among our greatest allies in maintaining fish and wildlife populations and the conservation title work that we do, that trying to get that those conservation programs into the hands of producers who, especially those that have great potential for aquatic stewardship, is one of the ways that we can help keep those lands in agricultural production. So to move from what this looks like on the ground to the focus of this, the accompanying blog post, how does TU work with Congress and work with members of the leg legislature on something like the Farm Bill? That's such a big piece of, of legislation and so central to what we do. That's a really good question because the Farm Bill is a little bit different than a lot of the other work that Trout Unlimited does. There's no other major federal agency that has its authorizing statute changed every five years. <laughs> Can you imagine what the Forest 
service would look like if it's like Organic Act was changed every five years. <laughs> it does forest planning and manages its lands. Chaos. So there's a little bit of controlled chaos that goes on with the farm bill, <laughs> meaning that we try to respect the fact that the agency is doing its best to implement this sort of sprawling effort of conservation work while also having its fundamental authority tinkered with every five years by Congress. How our project work informs our legislative work on the farm bill is the role that Trout Unlimited tries to play is to work with both NRCS staff and producers to ask the question, based on the last farm bill, what are the biggest barriers to getting more projects done or making it easier for you, NRCS staff, to manage these programs? Mm -hmm. and, and what could we do, Trout Unlimited, to make these programs easier to implement, to get money in the hands of producers faster, better, or to expand the conservation practices that we can do to increase the conservation impact of the work that we are doing? And so those, it's really important that we have this project experience, this rich project experience drawing across not only areas in the Midwest like the Driftless, but across our nine Western states that we're active in doing a whole myriad of different approaches of using con uh, conservation title and farm bill programs, but also a lot of work with producers up with in the Northeast and the New England states, especially with small forestry landowners and also riparian fencing along productive spring-fed streams along the eastern seaboard. So there's a lot of experience that Trout Unlimited has in putting over $6 million to the ground in projects under every sort of five-year farm bill renewal, where we're trying to answer that key question, how do we make it easier and better for both our federal agency partners and also the ranchers and farmers that we're working with. Yeah, so we have this wide array of partners that we work with, the Family Farm Alliance, the Western Agricultural and Conservation Coalition, or WAC. Can you talk a little bit more specifically about those partnerships and how we work with agricultural producers and other kinds of partners? As you're getting your voice heard in the in Congress, is a, it's a crowded space. And so Trout Unlimited acting alone can't not even as well informed as our voice is by our projects and our relationships with agency staff, we acting alone can't be heard in a way that will allow us to significantly shift federal legislation. And Sarah, as you say, these relationships with the Family Farm Alliance, with our Western Ag and Conservation Coalition, not only is that also an important piece of helping inform Trout Unlimited what our priorities should be so that we hear from a broad range of agricultural perspectives, not just the individual producers that we're doing projects with, but those associations and the concerns of their members. But it also allows us to come with a particularly unique brand, meaning when the Family Farm Alliance and Trout Unlimited can both come into a congressional office or to a, the Senate or House Agricultural Committee staff and say, we want the same thing, that gets people's attention because that not only is that sort of broadly bar bipartisan, but it shows that what we're asking for is not only good for producers, but it's also good for fish. So that partnership helps answer any lingering doubt there might be about whether the changes that we're asking for in the statute meet that criteria of good for farmers and ranchers and for fish. 
And that answers a lot of questions for congressional members and committee staff, and but also gives us a credibility that we wouldn't have standing alone. I think that's really interesting. In, in previous uh, episodes, we've talked about the broadening of the uh, the idea of how to best use our water and the, the broadening of bringing different voices to the table and talking about how TU could work with, with WAC and FFA to ha- you know provide a unified front of more than one set of voices saying this is what we think a good use for this water is or this or for these funds would be. I, I think I can see how that could be an incredibly strong uh, a strong tool. And also that five year time or that that time frame, that quick turnaround every time gives you the ability to add new voices a little more quickly than you might be able to otherwise. So it seems like it might be incredibly difficult to move inside that time frame, but at the same time allow some flexibility that we might not see in other legislative processes. That's exactly right, Brennan. And even the the controlled chaos of um, every five renewal of the Farm Bill also allows for some experimentation at scale that isn't possible with other federal agencies in terms of both trying to understand or trying to connect the evolution in our understanding of restoration with how those funds can get out into the hands of farmers and ranchers in a really expeditious way. And I think the story of the last Farm Bill authorization, which was in 2018, is a really good example of how our experience, both Trout Unlimited's, but also the changing landscape really informed that 2018 reauthorization. And I think Sarah has already described it as the most Western facing farm bill in the history of Mm -hmm. the farm bill. And indeed that 2018 farm bill did have the most important changes that aligned some of the conservation title programs with the urgency and the scope of drought and wildfire risk facing in the West. And that's an example of how the farm bill can actually be a little bit more nimble than some other agencies' authorities, for example, the U.S. Forest Service, in trying to respond to mega droughts, to ongoing drought, to wildfire risk. And we can experiment with trying to make sure that we're addressing those changing issues on the landscape. And I would say that our partnerships with our agricultural producers, both with organizations and individuals, was really important to Trout Unlimited's role in creating that Western-facing farm bill. We advocated along with our producers for more farm bill funding to go to water conservation and irrigation infrastructure projects that could have multiple benefits for both fisheries, for environmentally related drought mitigation and for effective water conservation to because drought and addressing drought for producers was such a priority. Trout Unlimited was also really key for addressing some of the inability of the NRCS, the agency that gets conservation title programs to the ground, their short-staffedness. There's not enough folks to go around. There are more producers than ever seeking to have those conservation funds applied to their own operations, whether it's a ranch or a farm. And there's a whole experiment that started in the farm bill before, the 2014 farm bill, to let partners help step in and provide that role of talking with producers, trying to link producers up with some of the 
conservation title or the farm bill funded practices and allowing some of those partners to do some of say the design work for a stream restoration project or to do to outsource the design work for an upgraded irrigation head gate and fish screen, for example, because there's just not enough NRCS staff to serve all those functions. And that was a program called the Regional Conservation Partnership Program or RCPP. And we, in the 2018 Farm Bill, we, a coalition and in part led by Trout Unlimited, made big changes to that program to help expand the scope of that program, play to the, the need to innovate with conservation practices, to be flexible with mm-hmm. what producers needed to achieve the best conservation outcomes that were consistent with the needs of their ranching or farming operation and to also help advance some of the really interesting conservation finance work that the NRCS was funding under other programs where they had really successful innovation around private payments for ecosystem services, linking say downstream municipalities, payments to reduce nitrate and nutrient nutrient loading in upstream farmlands and because it was more cost effective for the downstream municipalities to address that upstream pollution than to add another multi-million dollar upgrade to their water treatment facility. That creates this win-win for producers trying their best to do good stewardship on their lands and helps with the water quality and the cost effectiveness of municipalities trying to maintain quality drinking water on their end. And a lot of that had been incubated under the conservation title or some of that really good work had. And what we did with the RCPP is then give that kind of work a landing place in another section of the conservation title to expand from the sort of early experimental work to, oh, now let's try to broaden that work and do that at scale. So there was a, we created a pilot program for innovative financing and other sort of climate resilient at scale work with an innovative grant program. That's so what the so the RCPP acts as a glue there to help get that money or a glue or a, a pipe or something like that to help get that money from the funds set aside in the conservation title. I'm going to try and use my, use the correct terms here and then get them <laughs> to the producers or to those out on the ground projects. And they allow partners like TU or other organizations to, to help those to the producer meet up with, with those funds that are available and do those, that good work, that, that good sort of uh, forward-looking conservation work? That's a good explanation, Brennan. I like your use of the term, like the glue, right? Sure. It's as if partners can be that bridge, that, that glue that hold, tries to hold together the conservation title funding on the one hand and the short-staffed NRCS folks, mm-hmm. and then the producers, both farmers and ranchers on the other hand, that are may not have the time or the bandwidth to to negotiate sort of the many layers of forms and requirements for accessing that those federal funds. And also allows the conservation title funds to be applied at a larger scale than just working with single producers through some of the other programs. You can take a larger view of the geography and see how these all might work. Would you 
say that's correct, Laura? That's a really good point, Sarah. In fact, going back to your upper Midwest roots there, Brennan, I think the work that Trout Unlimited has been doing in the Driftless is a really good example of that ability to work on scale. Mm -hmm. Because if it were only up to individual farmers to work on their bit of stream, you might not be able to knit together restoration of an entire stream reach. Right. But with Trout Unlimited, helping to ensure that sort of successive farms all engage in some of the same restoration practices, then you start to have a much bigger conservation impact as you can go from the headwaters all the way to the mouth of a particular stream. But without the ability of a partner like Trout Unlimited to knit together those disparate farms and the individual payments to producers for those practices and and help adopt best practices as we learn more about what is effective and what works the best, Mm -hmm. that kind of landscape scale conservation benefit wouldn't happen. This also helps, again, connect that that private public mosaic. So this, the things that we may be able to do with agencies, the Farm Bill allows us to help in, in, in private lands as well, which is huge. Yes. And I think some of the work that Trout Unlimited is most proud of uh, is when we can help producers meet regulatory burdens or other demands from other federal agencies, whether it's helping to meet requirements for a listed species that keeps their irrigation operation intact by, say, screening a headgate for um, endangered salmon, or maybe we can help them meet water quality standards that are going into effect in their area. And it's one of the things I think our Trout Unlimited project staff are most proud of when we can help ease the red tape or the federal regulatory burden for the producers by just making their operation both um, better for the watershed, but also help their bottom line. Right. So when we're when we're working on getting these sorts of provisions added into the farm bill, what does that look like? Are, are we often working with partners or and directly with with folks up on the hill? Or what does that process look like as the farm bill is being pulled together? I guess that's a little bit of looking at how the sausage is made. But yeah. <laughs> yes, and it's a messy business. Uh, but no, I think that goes to your question is a really good one in that what that means is that Trout Unlimited, because of our long history in this area and because our advocacy or what we're recommending in terms of statutory changes is based not on these, not only the longstanding partnerships we have with folks like the Family Farm Alliance and the WAC, but also individual producers and our literally millions of dollars of project experience. It means that Trout Unlimited's voice is heard across a number of different arenas for influencing the legislative process. Trout Unlimited routinely testifies at congressional hearings at the invitation of members of Congress, for example. We're asked follow-up questions to help establish the congressional record. We get invited to speak with individual members of Congress and their staff. We become trusted sounding boards for um, committee staff when we're putting together language. And the fact that Trout Unlimited takes a long view of these problems, restoring watershed health and addressing imperiled species, means that we've been in these, sort of in the trenches of both restoration and the legislative process for multiple farm bills. Personally, I started my first work on farm bill statutory language back in 2008. 
I've made some mistakes along the way, but hey, every five years I get a chance to fix them. <laughs> so at first you don't succeed, try again. But what I mean by that is that when we go in to provide recommendations for statutory change, it's not our first rodeo. We've seen how legislative language was implemented by the agency in the prior farm bill. And in an, especially in my experience, that can be some of the most valuable feedback on what specific statutory language to use. And I'll give an example going back to our discussion about the Regional Conservation Partnership Program or this RCPP, the, the program as you described, Brennan, that is this glue between the funding on the one hand and getting it on the ground in a, in a conservation, in, in a way that creates conservation impact. Yeah. On the 2014 Farm Bill, we thought we had legislative language that would work really well particularly for, as Sarah described, these sort of large projects that would work with a, a sort of a basin scale on the irrigation infrastructure to, to address drought. We had a, a really, and still do have a great pro program manager in the Gunnison River Basin, Carrie Dennison, who has a long history, a years long history of working with agricultural irrigators in the Gunnison River Basin. And they put together a funding application and were awarded that application. And then we're working to get that under contract under some of the new provisions of this program. And it turned out the statutory language we wrote to allow that to happen was just not working. Okay. There were barriers that we hadn't foreseen that prevented the agency from doing it in a streamlined way and that prevented Trital Limited from stepping up and being the partner that could implement the program. And it, it was a months-long painful experience that what we thought was going to work really well actually did not work at all. Right. But what that did allow us to do was to learn from that direct experience and then change the language in the 2018 Farm Bill to address those kinds of what I would say unforeseen hiccups in the implementation. Right. We also discovered certain ways that program had required to be funding that was imposing incredible burdens on NRCS staff for tracking funding through contracts that was just eating up whole portions of their day. And we're like, oh, that was not the intent at all. We do not want you sitting in your office creating spreadsheets and counting dimes. Right. right? We want you to be actually doing the work of conservation. So let's fix that as well. And then the great thing about that kind of uh, thing is that that's where NRCS staff are like, oh, thank you so much. That's where our relationships with NRCS staff can help us carry their message to members of Congress in a way yeah. so that we are part of that glue, that part of that dialogue for making the whole thing work better. And that's yeah. where Trout Unlimited has, a, I think, a really credible voice when we, we suggest specific statutory language for the congressional staffers and then work to get that specific language adopted because we can back up the, right. our sort of word choices and our particular actual statutory structure. We can back that up with yeah. project examples, with conversations with NRCS staff, with our experience in doing projects, with conversations with producers. And that that brings us a credibility to our specific suggestions that that really, frankly, a lot of other groups just don't have that depth of experience. I think that's uh, it sort of seems like a perfect TU project, right? One that we've been working on for a while that we get to reassess regularly and, and try it out that 
farm bill is ours, obviously. We get to, it sounds like maybe just a good conservation practice, right? Because we we're learning so much so quickly and we're also trying new things all the time that we get to not only make sure we're doing the best for the stakeholders, but in this case, some, you know, also the staff, right? Uh, the staff of the agencies that are running it, right? We can adjust that stuff. And so we, every five years, we, and I say we as a country are able to look at that, the provisions we've put in there and yeah, and, and make them work better. I think that's, it's interesting. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And, uh, and I think too, you make a really good point, Brennan, that as an organization and as a conservation community, we're constantly learning. Right. right? <laughs> Restoration as a field of activity is still a relatively new science. Mm -hmm. And our learning is evolving over time on a pretty rapid basis. And I think about over my 20 year history with Trout Unlimited, what we were initially thinking about as high conservation impact restoration techniques now are quite frankly, somewhat outdated. And we have moved beyond say individual hardscape stream, individual stream reach restoration and talking about harnessing hydrologic processes to do the restoration for us so we can more cheaply and more effectively use the process of the natural stream to create restorative conditions. And that's right. a, a whole shift that's taken place in the restoration community just over the course of my tenure with Trout Unlimited. And what we're trying to do, and I know Sarah's talked about this in the reclamation context, is now we're trying to have the federal funding sources catch up to that learning that we have done in restoration practices. Yeah, to stick with the the how the sausage is made, the process side of things, 2018 Farm Bill, we get these great provisions in it. Then what's the process to actually get those provisions to hit the ground? What are the next steps at the is it agency level? You know, how does this now hit the ground? That's a great question, because then there, there's a lot of steps that go from the ink drawing on statutory language in Congress to getting it out onto a producer's field in Montana or Michigan. Mm -hmm. And the first thing that has to happen is the agency has to grapple with the new statutory language and say, does this rise to the level of a change that needs a new rule? So then there may be a whole rulemaking process, especially mm. if it's a big change. Then mm. that requires the agency to think about what kind of implementing rules it needs. It has to go out for public comment, try to limit it with them, of course, comment on those <laughs> rules, dialogue again with the agency and the staff on what the rules look like. Once the rules are rolled out, then the agency staff have to figure out how they're going to incorporate those statutory changes and how they roll out the funding to both producers or in the case of RCPP to partners so that you can apply for that funding. And then there may be new ways that the agency has to account for expending those funds if there's different kinds of accountability measures in the statute for how the funds are to be expended. So all of that requires time and effort by the agency and our partners to understand the changes and adapt to them. And I would say also, then there's an iterative process that goes on each year between those five years because the agency learns better how to roll out the new program or to, to better get new funding under contract 
partners like Trout Unlimited have a better idea of, oh, these are the kinds of projects that are now a really good fit for the funding. And these are the ones we should highlight. And this is what we should put together. And, oh, here's our matching funds to make the farm bill funds go further. And so there's a little bit of a lag as everyone regains their balance with the new playing field and figures out how to get it to work. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then you throw in the complexity of, say, a change in administration at the presidential level and new appointees who are also then trying to put their priorities on the agency that may sometimes be in conflict or in tension to the statutory goals. And then you can get wound around the axle a little bit. So it's uh, your question raises many complexities that travel <laughs> has to navigate. But not a straight line process. No, certainly not. And so 2018 was the last farm bill that was passed. So that means if we're on our five-year schedule, 2023, two years from now, should be the next one. What are some things that we're starting to think about as we look at 2023? Certainly the change in the presidential administration with its focus on climate resilience is certainly one of the biggest ones. And with the, the some potentially once in a generation opportunity to really think about infrastructure and federal spending for infrastructure, Trout Limited's position is that our hydrologic function is a necessary part of our national infrastructure. And Farm Bill funding and the conservation trital is an important part of that hydrologic function. But as we were talking before, we were describing that important connection between private lands and public lands, between headwaters and main stem rivers. And the conservation title is a really important piece of maintaining that connection. And so there are a couple of things that are sort of headlines for the 2023 Farm Bill. One is both conservation organizations and other agricultural groups are asking for an increase in funding to try to help address that gap between the demand for conservation practices and the limitation on funding. So we're trying to get a rising tide lifts all boats. We're trying to get that increase in funding. We're also trying to really target those farm bill practices and those programs that get at that landscape scale climate resilience. So that means provisions to address catastrophic wildfire, particularly for private landowner, private forestry owners. It means more and better implementation of those Western facing provisions we got in the 2018 Farm Bill to address water conservation and drought that really haven't had the kind of big landscape scale implementation that we've been hoping for. Partly as you astutely asked Sarah, like. What's the process for getting the statutory changes to the ground? Because those were big shifts in the conservation title, it's going to take more than just a one five-year period to really get those to the ground and see the kind of benefit we could get from well-thought-out and well-developed both partnership applications and individual projects. Mm -hmm. And so we can tinker with some of those 2018 Farm Bill changes, especially in the Western-facing provisions Now that we understand, similar to the example of the Gunnison, where we learn, oh, this is really hard to get under contract, we can go in and tinker with some of what we did last time to say, oh, there's been, been it's gotten bound up in this particular way. Mm -hmm. And maybe we can make it easier. It's still really difficult for the agency to get these big partnership agreements under contract. 
I'm like, okay, what can we do to go in there and make it easier to get these partnership agreements under contract in a way that doesn't take a lot of NRCS staff time? You know, so we'll be going in, I think in the 2023 farm bill, not to make the same amount of sweeping change that we did in 2018, but now we're in that sort of that role of, okay, how do we make it better? We, right. we put in a lot of these Western changes for climate resilience focus for the RCPP, for water conservation under the irrigation infrastructure projects. Now, how do we just make that function better? How do we make it easier for the NRCS staff? And how do we also provide accountability back to the congressional members who were real advocates for that change that what they did in the farm bill is actually working? Yeah, going in and rounding the corners and uh, avoiding those places where things get caught or things get snagged. I think that's, that's great. And again, I think that's, that plays to the strength of that five-year cycle. You can do it once, watch how it works, and then you can polish and clean. Yeah. We might suggest to the Forest Service that they update their Organic Act every five years. Yes. Just yeah. So we've been talking about the, the sausage making process, how how the farm bill changes every five years, what it looks like to do the work of writing legislative language, including these provisions, getting them to the ground. So given that this process is it's on a relatively short time frame for legislation, it's just every five years we get a chance to get in there and iterate what we've been doing. But are these in particular from the 2018 farm bill, are these Western facing provisions that address drought? Are they keeping up with the current needs of the West? Right now, if you look at a drought map of the West, we've got extreme drought for a large portion and some portion, some level of drought for much of the West. So are these drought provisions keeping up with the current hydrologic situation here? Sarah, that really is the question of the day, especially when thinking about the next reauthorization of the Farm Bill. And the answer is no. Like the drought and the severity of the drought both for producers and the risk of catastrophic wildfire. Mm -hmm. it, our federal programs are just not keeping up with that. Six months after the 2018 Farm Bill, 11 Western senators actually wrote to the, the chief of the NRCS and the Secretary of Agriculture saying, hey, let's get these Western facing provisions really implemented in a robust way. It's been six months and we haven't seen anything. The complexity of getting new statutory authority to the ground. But the Western senators made a really important point when they wrote that letter. They talked about how drought is now the single most, uh, the, the single largest driver of crop insurance payments mm -hmm. for the entire country, over 40% just for drought. And that that averages $4 billion with a B dollars per year. Um, that's actually, that's way more than the, the conservation title. Right. Those 2018 drought facing provisions we're trying to do was trying to get ahead of the drought crop crop payments and say, if we can get ahead of drought, if we can plan for it, if we can do big water conservation efforts, if we can help producers switch to more water conserving crops or less thirsty crops so that when their sub irrigation supply is reduced by nature or by competition for water, it doesn't have the same devastating effect on their bottom line. Like let's out and do some of those innovative practices to try to get at that. And that's where the sort of creaky machinery of the whole NRCS and its implementation just wasn't keeping pace with some of the innovations in the 2018 Farm Bill. For example, 
There are some provisions in that 2018 farm bill that would have helped um, irrigators retire land and get payments for that. That's a very popular CREP, CRP, Conservation Reserve Program. And that has not yet been implemented or even mm. really had a serious discussion in these Western states. Mm. And that could be of enormous benefit to individual producers, individual ranchers or farmers that can take some of those marginal lands out of production, but also then at a system basis or a, a whole watershell. And Sarah, when you talked, asked earlier sort of about the scale of the problem, mm -hmm. I think one of the difficulties in getting these 2018 provisions implemented is some of these provisions are asking the NRCS to kind of think at this, this watershed scale basis. Mm -hmm. And yet the whole history of the agency is working with individual producers one by one. Right. But you, you, know, you asked that good question. Are we keeping up with the scale of the problem in terms of drought in the West? And the answer is we, we can't solve or we can't address drought and climate resilience in the West if we go from one producer to the next producer one at a time. Mm -hmm. And so some of the tension and some of the challenge in getting these Western facing provisions implemented is this shift from one producer at a time to a whole watershed or multiple producers within a watershed and shifting the scale of the thinking. Mm -hmm. um, but I think in order to really address the scale of the problem, we're gonna have to make that shift. And we're beginning to get the tools to do so. It's mm -hmm. just taking a lot of elbow grease and a lot of right. careful thought to get it there. Mm -hmm. And it makes sense given the history of the farm bill, right? It, it largely grew out of the Great Depression when those individual farmers needed that, you know, hands-on help um, one by one. And offices were very locally controlled uh, and with that mandate took with individual producers. So it makes sense that there's that kind of historical inertia behind turning this ship, but it doesn't mean we don't have the opportunity to work on that. Right. Your ad goes back to one of the themes, I think, of our discussion today is that we're constantly learning about what mm -hmm. works best. We're constantly learning about what new approaches to take to meet the needs of the land and the waters. And I think that shift from individuals coming out of the Great Depression to sort of a watershed scale or a landscape scale, looking at climate resiliency is part of that shift. Mm -hmm. We've looked in, in other episodes, and I, I think I mentioned even earlier today, that we continue to add more voices to the conversation about what is best mm -hmm. and how we use this water. And it almost seems like there, there are certainly some voices that are not being included, but as we continue to add more and more voices, mm -hmm. the, the scope both gets bigger, but also we start to recognize the, the to totality of the issue, right? And it seems as we... It's, more of those voices, we co we continually come up with better solutions as well. And taking a step back and addressing the systems and the water, the basin itself, and kind of looking that at that as a voice that's coming to the table now, I think is is a really, really fascinating. And I'm I'm guessing it will be an incredibly productive sort of shift in the way that we address managing water out that way. Mm -hmm. That's a really good point, Brennan, and I like how you've connected having a more inclusive dialogue in terms of the voices, particularly historically unrepresented or underrepresented mm -hmm. voices, really mirrors on a conservation title or a conservation standpoint, mirrors that 
shift to looking at whole systems and right. looking at whole watersheds. And I think you made a really important point that as our view widens to take into account a broader array of voices, that helps us understand the systems we're working on, the natural systems we're working on in yeah. a, a more inclusive, but also a more powerful way. So that it just, I think you summed it up really well that we're constantly learning. And if we're doing our best work, we're plowing that learning back into not only our projects and our relationships with folks who are stewarding the land, but at the policy end to try to help the, our federal statutes and rules reflect that learning. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that really, uh, and I'm, I'll probably cut that, cut this out, but that's going through, you know, this is the, the fifth episode we've done of this, but again, really uh-huh. that the, the thing that I keep taking away again is that more, more voices, not only, you know, it looks like it's going to create more conflict, but, and it may at the beginning, but then the, the solutions end up being better for all of the parties, right? It's, it's, right. I think it's this interesting way that we haven't really identified or we're still, we're so used to as Americans and as people coming to the new world, being able to move to the next thing and always have, we have these sort of unlimited resources, right? And I think that right. when we, you know, when we hit that wall, we realize we're a closed system. I think we're still, we're getting to this point where we're starting to really understand that we have to involve everybody in order to make the right. solution right for each and every voice. You know, the voices aren't competitive where we're working together and sort of raising that up. And I think it's, it's just been fascinating how that's played out and to learn about that with, with Sarah. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, it makes me think I need to go and reread uh, Jared Diamond's book, Collapse. I've read mm. it now many years mm. ago, and yeah. I feel like I need to read it now with kind of these, my, you know, 2020 eyes, um, because what he did in that book, I don't know if either of you or both of you have read that one, but what's compelling about him is his reputation of a theme with, you know, school mm-hmm. examples. And yes, I could see that maybe he's forcing some mm-hmm. examples to line up in ways that may not quite be, you know, completely accurate. Yeah. But I think that his over his over, you know, his overarching narrative is a good one, which is here are examples of how excluding voices mm-hmm. from scarcity led to the collapse of the whole system. And mm-hmm. that in my mind was like one of his overarching points, like over and over again. You know, yeah. This is what happens when you don't pay attention to you know, the 30% of your population that's no longer being fed because you're skimming off, you know, part of the abundance and isolating it in the hands of the ruling class. It's, it's almost and, like we have these recurring themes historically, you know? Yeah, right. Does it repeat? Right, I don't remember who right. said that. Right. But, yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is something I think about a lot. I think this discussion in particular has made me think a lot about the debate within environmental history that has been happening over the past 20 or 30 years about this um, this shift towards a hybrid nature and that 
we don't get a lot of productive things done when we think about nature as mm. other and, you know, mm -hmm. try and make it pristine and untouched mm -hmm. or untouchable. But the more that we understand that we are inextricably a part of these natural systems, the more we can get done because we can't remove ourselves from them. Right. And like, it's kind of fundamental to like build fake beaver dam. Right. right. <laughs> you know? Right. Um, and yet that can help reset the system in a way that it can't, maybe it can't do that itself. Um, and that kind of helps to, I think, get it both, you know, a, a whole range of subjects from like, what does it mean to restore nature? Like right. we make it function right. better, but like, what are we actually restoring and why? And then also yeah. thinking about indigenous people on the landscape, right? The North America people like pristine wilderness when right. Europeans showed up, but how can we think about, it's always been a hybrid nature yeah. um, and where do we fit in? And, farm bill does you know in many ways <laughs> that's another example of how we get to use that that short accelerated five-year renewal and time frame to iteratively address some of these issues are there any specific issues laura that we're going to be looking at in the 2023 farm bill as it starts shaping up Oh, always. And you know what? Two really come out of Trout Unlimited's and other partners' experience of this RCPP program, the Regional Conservation Partnership Program that, that we've been talking about. The first is uh, the pilot program that was statutorily authorized by the 2018 Farm Bill to provide, as we talked about, kind of this landing place for, say, innovative conservation financing and other landscape scale projects to work on both climate resiliency and maximize conservation impact. Well, as it's been implemented by the agency, it hasn't yet fully lived up to the potential of that mm -hmm. pilot program because it has not done sort of these broad grants to partners, but rather used a much more constrained contracting mechanism. And while that's not very sexy to talk about what kind of contracting mechanism the agency <laughs> used, when you right. get down to trying to move federal money from the hands of the federal government to get it to the ground, to ranchers and farmers, having sort of the, the simplest and easiest pathway for right. doing that, particularly when you're trying to do more innovative practices, that, 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 con that contracting vehicle starts to make a really big difference in mm -hmm. how and when that, that money can get to the ground in an efficient way. So I think one thing we'll do is to really revisit that and see if we can't provide better direction and better support to the agency for using a streamlined process. And similarly, with um, even outside of that pilot program, we talked about how under the RCPP that partners help to be part of the bridge, try to, and part of addressing that shortfall in the staffing capacity of the NRCS to get money to individual farmers and ranchers. And what has been part of the holdup is sort of the accounting process that the agency feels like it has to go through in allowing the partners to be that bridge. I'll give okay. you an example from one of our um, longtime conservation partners, the Audubon Society, that had a really successful RCPP under the prior farm bill, prior to 2018, for tricolored uh, blackbirds in the Central Valley of California, mm -hmm. uh, working with producers to provide um, edge of field habitat for the blackbird um, nesting in, in exchange for payments so that they could 
um, not harvest all the way to the field edge, but then not lose entirely the, the benefits of that extend or, you know, additional harvest. And it was a win-win, right? It was allowing Purdue operators to provide habitat. It was a win for the birds. And then it was a win for the bottom line of the producers that they weren't losing money by right. providing that nesting habitat. So it was a very successful project. It was immediately renewed under the 2018 Farm Bill. A year and a half later, it is still not under contract hmm. because the agency is wringing its hands over how the partner, in this case, Audubon Society, is getting those payments to producers. This is wow. after successfully implementing it under the prior farm bill. It's just a renewal of the same project. Mm -hmm. So that's an example of, okay, I think we need to go back in and figure out how we make it easier for the NRCS staff to rely on partners to deliver these farm bill funds and right. to deliver these, this, this federal funding hands of producers. So those are two, I think, specific examples of how, again, based on specific project experience, we can go back in and answer that question. How do we make this work for both NRCS staff, for ranchers and farmers, and for partners like National Audubon and Trout Unlimited? It's, it's amazing how... Oh, it seems like you have to be very complete in your thinking on this. You, you can't just think about the, <laughs> the conservation aspect of it. You can't just think about the funding aspect. You also have to think about the delivery aspect, the, the, the partnerships. And, and it seems like there's so many opportunities for unnecessary friction to pop up um, that it's probably really good that you get every five years to go back and say, <laughs> oh, wait a minute, this, you know, nobody wanted this. You're right. And hope we'll do our best to figure out those snags and to get them fixed in the next farm bill. <laughs> well, Laura, it's been really great talking to you. Uh, I feel like I've learned a whole lot today. I think uh, both both uh, a lot of acronyms uh, and also <laughs> I think I've, uh, I, you know, I feel like I have a significantly better understanding of the conservation title in the farm bill. I'm going to have to go in and examine those other 11 titles as well. Oh, I'm sure it's the top of your to-do list. What are those other 11 titles? Absolutely. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not going to ruin it for our listeners because I certainly know all 11 of them, but I'll let them look it up. Later. Well, that was super informative. I don't think I've ever been so interested in the farm bill. Laura makes it really easy to digest. Yeah, that was a really great conversation. And even though I work on this stuff with Laura all the time, it was really interesting to hear from her about the process for how tea works on federal legislation. And I learned a lot too. Yeah, and this episode wraps up the part of the series where we explore how tea works at different scales and in different places in the West. Uh, what are we talking about next week, Brennan? Yeah, next week we're going to be looking at the current state of affairs in the Colorado River Basin. And we'd also really like to answer your questions. Speaking of which, um, if you've got a question about Western water or anything kind of water-centric, uh, we'd love to hear from you before we start recording this, uh, this last episode. Uh, so shoot us a question over if you got one uh, via email at ww101 at tu.org. Again, that's ww101 at tu.org. I also wanted to mention that Sarah wrote some really great companion pieces on these episodes, which you can find at www.tu.org slash ww101. That's a whole lot of W's we're going to leave you with, but uh, as we are talking about the World Wide Web uh, and Western water, uh, I don't think there's any way around it. So thanks for listening, and uh, we'll catch you next time. Yeah, thanks. We'll talk to you next time. <laughs>